Um, we're in 1 Peter 3. If you're a guest this morning, we essentially, most of the time we work through books of the Bible. We're halfway through 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Let's stand to honor the reading of God's Word <clears throat> as you're able. Let's read it together this morning. Maybe that will burn a few calories in this cold temperature and uh, warm you up. Read with me. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> How would you all define the good life? The good life. Or maybe back up before we ask that question. How would the world around us define the good life? What would be some of the elements? And I'll even ask for congregational responses here. How does the world in which we live, what would be some of, the, some of the elements that they would put into a definition of, quote, the good life? Lots of money. Lots of money. Yeah. Money buys the good life. Fame. Fame. Yeah. Recognition. Health. Good health. Mm-hmm. A big house. Sometimes the bigger the better, right? See. Happiness is the good life. Personal happiness, whatever it is for you that brings happiness. Yep. Anybody else? You know, if you Google what is the good life, you'll come up with 147 million results. And I actually, I thought, okay, yeah, probably the first maybe 20 or 30 really deal with the good life, and then it's, you know, the good life cookies recipe or something, but no, actually, I just kept going and going and going and finding more and more elements pertaining to the good life. You've got, you got classes and seminars, you've got lots of books that have been written along these lines, different aspects of how to achieve the good life. Um, I found a devotionals for a ridiculously good life. So I, don't, I didn't look to see what they're about. There's a good life family magazine uh, the country of Luxembourg is dedicated to food, wine, and the good life. So if you all want to move to Luxembourg. Psychology Today did a survey uh, back in 2013 where they actually asked respondents to uh, give them what are the basic elements for the good life. And their responses fell into essentially four categories. Um, said the good life is experiencing pleasure. So whatever you define as pleasure, that's going to be the good life. On the flip side, avoiding negative experiences. So it doesn't really matter how much pleasure I have. As long as I can avoid the negative, bad things happening, it'll be good. Uh, seeking self-development. 
self-fulfillment, making yourself stronger, healthier, more educated, what have you, self-development, and then the last one, making contributions to others. And of those four, the third one, seeking self-development, was actually the, the, highest, the highest ranking one in the, in the Psychology Today survey. <clears throat> but what about you? In your estimation, uh, what are the absolute essentials for living the good life? Have you ever thought about that? And even if you haven't sat down with a piece of paper, it'd be an interesting exercise if we were to pass out paper and say, write out your definition. What are the elements? Even if you've never done that, you actually have developed an internal sense of what you've decided is the good life. It's based, you can see that in, in how you spend your money, how you spend your time, your priorities, what you value and what you don't value, things that are important to you and things that really aren't that important to you. You've, you've actually got a definition, whether you know it or not. <clears throat> In our study through the epistle of 1 Peter, we're coming to a section where he's getting ready to talk in considerable depth about suffering. He's writing to first century believers, uh, people who are experiencing varying degrees of persecution, uh, and fundamentally because of their faith in Jesus. And, uh, there's nothing to indicate that there was official persecution going on necessarily at this time. It was just the persecution that was pretty standard in the first century for believers. They were mocked, they were ridiculed, they were slandered, they were falsely accused. Um, some, of the, some of them experienced uh, familial and social ostracism, being cut off in relationships, losing their jobs. There probably were some who received beatings at the hands of their masters. There seems to be some reference to that when he talks to slaves. But generally, they were just experiencing varying degrees of mistreatment because of their faith in Jesus. And so the question is, what does the good life look like for, the, for them? What does the good life look like for people for whom life is not going all that well because of your faith in Christ? <clears throat> now, Peter quotes in the passage we read this morning and that we're going to be looking at, Peter quotes extensively, extensively from Psalm 34, a psalm written by David. <clears throat> and David, in that middle of that psalm, asks the question in verse 12 of Psalm 34, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In other words, David is, it's like David is saying, let me, let me see a show of hands for those who desire a good, long life. And every hand in the room goes up. But that's verse, that's, that's verse 11 and 12. The psalm begins with David saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. And then he calls for others to join him. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Then he gives a short personal testimony. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. And then in verse 8, he seems to extend an invitation to those who might be having some doubts about trusting God, he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now I look at all those verses in Psalm 34 and I conclude that if David were to be asked the question, David, what is the good life? He would say, 
it's the Lord. The Lord is the good life. Now we just sang the song. You are good, good. Oh, you are good. See, that song is saying, what's the good life? God is the good life because he is so good. Because he is so good. David would say to know him, to bless him, to boast in him, to magnify him, to make much of the Lord, to seek him, to take refuge in him. He's faithful. He's unchanging. All these other things that bring happiness, they change. All these things that we look to, our houses and our salaries and our bonuses and our retirement plans and our health, they all come and go. But David would say, no, the Lord is steady. The Lord is always there. His, his love is everlasting. He's, he's faithful. And David would say, for me, the Lord is the good life. And then in verse 11, he takes on the posture of a father gathering his children around him who need instruction. He says in verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. This is David saying, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord leads to the good life. And then it's in verse 12 where he asks that all-important question, what man, what woman is there who desires life and loves many days that he or she may see good? And so you put those two verses together and David is saying, come children, listen to me, and I will teach you what you need to know about a life that is truly good. Okay? And that's what Peter includes in chapter 3, that whole chunk, which is our passage for today. So let me share with you from 1 Peter 3 and I'm wrapped in Psalm 34 some things that I think we can glean from this passage about living a life that's truly good. <clears throat> gives you a different paradigm, gives you a biblical paradigm for the good life. First of all, the first thing that I get out of this, it might seem kind of strange at the beginning, but your first point, uh, the, the, good, the good life is a life that is curved out instead of a life that's curved in. I'm not talking about the shape of your belly button, whether you have innies or outies. Uh, I'm talking about how you're bent. A good life has a certain bent to it. See, everything that Peter's going to talk about in these verses, and actually the rest of his epistle, has to do with bending your life in the opposite direction that it naturally tends to go. Jenny and Jesse and I, I can't remember which park we were in recently, but we were walking through a park and we, we spotted this huge tree. And it was at a 45 degree angle. It, it came up out of the ground and then it bent to literally a 45 degree angle. And at first I thought maybe the wind had just yanked it by the roots and tipped it sideways. That wasn't the case. It actually grew that way. It was bent at an early age. And it probably when it was a sapling, it needed to be staked to bend it back more straight. Our lives are nat naturally bent at 45 degree angles. We're, we're curved. The good life is one that is curved out versus one that is curved in, curved straight versus curved crooked. Now I stole that from Martin Luther, who borrowed it from Augustine, incurvatus in se, which means twisted back into oneself. Twisted back into one's 
So it's not curvature of the spine that we're worried about, it's curvature of the heart. It's the curvature of the self that turns inward. Luther writes, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. <clears throat> now what Luther means is, first, despite your best efforts to get beyond yourself, to love and serve others to the best of your ability, we all find it impossible to escape that gravity pull of self-interest. It just keeps pulling us inward. And then secondly, I think Luther is saying that we're often completely unconscious that that's what's happening even when we are doing that behavior. We don't know, what, we don't know that it's going on, but it actually is. It's self-interest. And Luther then quotes Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately corrupt, who can understand it? It's because the heart is bent inward. It, it curves in on itself. You see, friends, this was one of the most damaging effects of the fall. In fact, it's what brought about the fall in the first place. The devil convinced Adam and Eve that if they would just eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which God said, don't, that their eyes would be opened, they would become wise. In fact, they'd be like God. In other words, the devil was trying to convince Adam and Eve that if they would bend their lives in on themselves, make life, make this garden about you, make that tree about you, <clears throat> that that would be the best. They would discover the very best if they would do that. The devil was saying, it's not about God. It's not about obeying God and doing what he says. No, it's about doing what you want. It's about taking what you want. It's about making your own decisions. You need to make life about you and you need to start right here with this tree. And that's been our problem ever since. We are curved in upon ourselves. And so you find phrases describing the human condition, such as Romans 2, self-seeking. Philippians 2, selfish ambition. 2 Timothy 3, lovers of self. Our sinful nature convinces us, and then the world and the devil are more than willing to give their support to the idea that personal fulfillment and happiness in life is going to come from taking care of number one. <clears throat> That's the good life. And so whatever you put in there, pleasure, houses, lands, vacations, retirement funds, um, <clears throat> personal happiness, success, fame, <clears throat> it's curved in. And very honestly, it seems to make sense, doesn't it? I mean, who better knows me than me? Who better knows what's best for me than me? And then Jesus comes along and makes statements like we find in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And you say, that makes no sense. I mean, if you lose something of great value, you'll actually find it? By losing one's life, you save it? And Jesus says, yeah, that's the way it works. You need to deny self. 
You need, in other words, you need to refuse self of its demand to be in control. Say no to self because it's, it's curved in the wrong direction. It's bent inward. Friends, think about Jesus. Was his life curved in or was it curved out? All the time. It was curved out. It was curved out to the Father. He came to do the Father's will. And it was always curved out to other people. It was, it, it was turned out to those he came to serve. And then that's what he taught his disciples. Matthew 20, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. There's that reversal again. He, he's always tipping things upside down. He's always tipping things upside down. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in those verses we looked at last week, probably verses that I need to look at every day, to be honest with you. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, for those who are believers, for those who put their faith in Jesus, this way of thinking can now be yours through faith in Jesus. You've been made new in Christ. You're a new creation. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You put your faith in Jesus. Now he gives to you a new mind. He gives to you a whole new paradigm for thinking about life. Who, though he was in the form of God, have this mind, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so God's word would tell us this morning, that is where you begin in wanting to live the good life. That's where you have to begin. Don't start out with the commands to be sympathetic. Don't start out with the commands to have unity of mind and all those things that we're going to look at. Amen. No, no, no. You've got to start out with realizing this is not going to come naturally to me because I'm curved in on myself. I think that's why Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's the first thing I see before you even start to dive into these, these exhortations as to how to live the good life. And then when Christ is living in you, when you take the life that God's given you and you're living your life by faith in Jesus, your life, what? Your life starts to curve out. It starts to curve out instead of in. And you can then start to become, point number two, you can start to become caring and compassionate instead of callous and caustic. You see those in the strings of words and phrases that he gives us in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. It means to be same-minded. Live in harmony with one another is another way of saying it in Romans 12. Harmony, unity, 
Paul says in Ephesians 4, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if, if I'm now starting to be curved out instead of in, I want to find unity with my brothers and sisters. Because it's not about me. First it's about God and Christ, and then it's about his people. So I want unity with these people. And let's be honest, that can be hard. I mean, you got, just to hear this morning, you know, we got different people with different backgrounds and different cultures and different opinions. You've got, we got people with their own stories of those things that have contributed to who you are today. And now we're all together in a local church and then you break it down even smaller where you're all together in a life group of 8, 10, 12, 14, 15 people. And you're all different. And you're supposed to have unity of mind, harmony. You say, well, Gary, what's the unifying factor in all that? Well, it's probably obvious to you the unifying factor is your faith in Jesus. That, that you and that other person, that you're not really exactly, a, you've got differing opinions, but nevertheless, you're both learning how to die to self. You're both learning how to live to God. You both have God as your Father. You both have Jesus as your Savior and your brother. You have the Holy Spirit living within both of you. The Spirit of God is your counselor, and it's, he's also her counselor and his counselor. And so all these things remind you, okay, I guess we do, have, we do have some unity here, don't we? And then he says sympathy. Have sympathy for each other. Sympathes, same feeling. Sum, sympathes, pathos, same feeling. Have the same feelings that others are having in terms of what they're going through. They're celebrating and filled with joy. So should you. They're in agony. You should agonize. They're in pain. You should feel their pain. Sympathy means you're trying to understand what the other person's going through. The writer of Hebrews, again, says of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So that's where sympathy starts, looking at Jesus and saying, my goodness, he sympathizes with me. How is that possible? The Son of God, holy, eternal, never sinned. How does he sympathize with me? I guess the question there, friends, would be, are you able to truly sympathize with the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters? Or do you find yourself superior to them or judging them? Can you sympathize with their struggle with temptation and sin? See, I wonder at times if we're afraid to sympathize because it may be perceived as condoning their sin or suggesting that it's not that big of a deal. And so we pull back from sympathy. That's not, that's not what's happening when you sympathize with someone. No, when you sympathize with others, you're saying, hey, I get it. I get it. I totally, I, I get your struggle. 
And so you weep with those who weep, and you agonize with those who are in agony, and you feel their fears, you share their insecurities, you, you, you feel their fear of being judged by other Christians. You know what the biggest problem, I think the Pharisees had one of the biggest problems? They had no sympathy. They had no sympathy. They stood in judgment over other people. They didn't know what sympathy was. I mean, you see, to not sympathize is to be indifferent or uncaring or judgmental. To where you think to yourself, maybe you don't say, but you think to yourself, well, they wouldn't be going through all of this if they had just made better choices. True that. Boy, I'm glad Jesus didn't say that to the woman caught in adultery. He could have. He sure could have. Of course, we need to make better choices. They probably already know that. But that's not your problem. Your problem is, where's your sympathy? You see, if you're all about justice, you'll never know sympathy. The, the Pharisees were all about justice. And so they didn't know what sympathy looked like. And friends, we have a high priest in Jesus who sympathizes. He sympathizes with me in all of my mess. I love whatever somebody said this morning up here. Missy, that his love is reckless. At times, our love needs to be reckless. Our, our love tends to be guarded. Our, our love tends to be calculated. And whenever my love is calculated, it's not like Jesus. His love is ridiculously reckless. To that point right there. And so he calls for you and me to sympathize with our brothers and sisters the way he sympathizes with us. And then affection, um, brotherly love, phileo is the word. It's the love that the people of Philadelphia have been feeling toward each other ever since winning the Super Bowl except for those who are beating each other up and committing other violent acts, but never mind that. See, affection is the kind of love that people have for those with whom they are closely related or have close ties. You've got something, something in common with each other, and so you have affection. When people go through a natural disaster, and in this case, people who are suffering with each other, Believers who are suffering with other believers, persecution, mockery, slander, what have you. When, you. when you're experiencing something together, you have affection for each other. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Again, that's curving your heart, yourself and your heart outward. Tenderhearted, he says. Have a tender heart. That carries the idea of extending forgiveness from a heart made tender by God. God has made your heart tender. And so you want to forgive rather than seek revenge or pay back or pay evil for evil. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so tender-heartedness carries with it kindness and forgiveness. And then humility, humble-minded. Humble-minded. I see that as foundational to all the others. 
We're going to see it again in chapter 5. Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Again, friends, do you see how that's a heart that's curved out? If my heart is curved in, it's going to be a prideful heart. If it's curved out, my, my self has to go down while the interests of others comes up. Humility. Clothe yourselves. When you come to West Hills, when you go to Life Group, when you go out into the world this week, put on the cloak of humility. That was the attitude that Jesus exhibited in his relationship with his disciples. You'll recall how on the night when he instituted the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, he took upon himself the role of a household servant. John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and then he took a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and then to wipe them with the towel that had been wrapped around. So he would wash their feet, and he would take the towel off from around his waist and dry their feet off with that towel. And you say to yourself, that's the good life? Are you kidding me? Serving others is the good life? It's a whole, definitely a whole different paradigm than what we're used to, no doubt. And then a few verses later in John 13, Jesus, John writes, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, put his clothes back on, resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've just done? You call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see what I've done, Jesus says, I've given you an example. You should do just as I've done to you. Now, you can turn that into an ordinance where you literally have foot washing ceremonies, that's totally fine. I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at here. He was saying, you take a very humble posture, you curve your life out, you wrap yourself in a towel, and you do whatever your brother or sister needs done in order to serve them. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, catch this, if you know these things, blessed, there's the good life, blessed are you if you do them. You see, friends, the opposite of being caring and compassionate is to be callous, indifferent, disengaged, hardened toward others, and caustic. That was the first, abrasive. Words and actions that bite, being sarcastic and derogatory and dismissive. The Pharisees were dismissive of other people. And we can, we can be guilty of the same, can we not? We can be dismissive of other people's opinions and feelings. We can come across as to suggest that my opinion is the only right opinion. My way is the only right way.
The third thing that I see coming out of what Peter writes here is the good life is a life that confers blessing on others as opposed to a life where you're counterattacking. You're punching back. Again, not to get political, but I would suggest to you that we unfortunately have an example right now in the White House of someone who, who counterattacks. He punches back. It just seems to, it just seems to lack, it seems to lack the wisdom that we find in the scriptures. And so you don't, you want to make sure that you're looking to the right places and the right people for the examples to follow for the good life, okay? Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. On the contrary, he flips it over. Bless, for to this you were called, that you may then obtain a blessing. Do not repay evil for evil. Evil, just that general state of badness. Bad actions, bad words coming from a person with a bad heart and it comes at you. They throw evil your way. And you, you just, wanna, you just want to, to respond in the exact same way. I'm, they gave me badness, I'm gonna give badness back at them. You're mistreated by someone who's mean-spirited or has got their own stuff going on in their life. They're a mess, they throw their mess on you. You don't know what to do with it. And if you're a believer, Peter and Jesus and Paul all say you are not to retaliate. That may be your natural inclination. Your natural inclination is going to be to try to figure out a way to, to, to get back, maybe even to justify your actions. Are you kidding me? After what he did to me? After what she said to me? Now your old nature is going to rise up. Trust me, I've been there. I've done it many times. Get defensive. Trying to figure out a way to make my, take my stand. You will naturally want to go there and that's where your heart will begin to curve back in instead of curving back out. You will not want to bless. You'll be looking for a pound of flesh. Romans 12, Paul says what Peter says, bless those who persecute you. Bless do not curse them. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Romans 12 again. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I'll take care of it in due time. It'll be addressed perfectly. You will not handle this perfectly. You're gonna mess this thing up. I'll take care of it in, it in the perfect way. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, figure out what your enemy needs and give them that. And Paul and Peter are simply reiterating what Jesus taught. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's the golden rule. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit? Even sinners do that. No, love your enemies. 
Do good to your enemies. Lend to your enemies. Expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. And you say, well, how is that? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, Jesus says. Say, ah, there it is. Because my Father is kind to the ungrateful and evil as me. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. The fourth piece to the good life that I see here is that we are called to be controlled versus careless in the way we live. It's where Peter quotes extensively from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him take control of his words. It says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And so, first century believers are being persecuted, they're being mocked, they're being attacked. And boy, you want to you go to your arsenal, don't you? You want to you go to your arsenal of words. Because that's, for most of us, that's our biggest arsenal. Words. I can use words to get back. And he says, don't allow your tongue to go in the direction of speaking evil. You need to be committed to speaking the truth. You need to be committed to not slandering. You need to be committed to speaking words of blessing. Don't give your tongue carte blanche permission to do whatever it wants because the wise person is slow to speak. See, I think Peter is saying the good life is found with the person who puts a guard over their lips. James talks about that at length, where he says that your tongue is a fire, sets on, you know, it's like this fire that sets things ablaze. Your tongue is a poison, a deadly poison. We bless, we bless God. We sing his praises when we're here. We, you know, Scott and Polly and the team lead us and we open our mouths and we sing his praises and then we go out into the world and we use the exact same tongue to say things that just should not have been allowed out of our mouths. And by the way, I would just say it again. I've hit on it several times this year over this series out of Peter. Peter, when he wrote this, did not know about tweeting. <laughs> he did not know about Facebook. He did not know about social media. Friends, that is where we probably use, if not as many, maybe more words than the ones that get expressed with our tongue and our lips. Christians need to exercise phenomenal control in how you use words in social media. Control. Control your words. And also, he says, control your walk. Let him turn away from evil. You're going this direction. You want to go towards evil with someone who's persecuting you, with someone who's attacking you. you evil for evil. You want to head towards evil with them. He says, no, turn away from that direction. Do good. Let this person who wants to pursue the good life, let him seek peace. Let him pursue peace. The good life is marked by doing good to rotten people. The good life is marked by doing good to rotten people. 
Seek peace. Pursue peace in your relationship with others. Don't be okay with broken relationships with others just being ignored. Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, make peace with that other person. Live peaceably with all. Because blessed are peacemakers. He says, seek peace, pursue peace, aggressively go after peace. And by the way, all, I want you to see something here, and this, this comes out of Peter Scazzaro's book, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. All of these marks that Peter talks about here and that Paul talks about are not only marks of spiritual maturity, they are also marks of emotional maturity. And you can't separate the two. You see, having an, and again, I just speak out of my own heart and my own experience as a 65-year-old man who's, who's, who's wrestled with what does sanctification look like in, in me. Um, having an attitude of defensiveness. Always wanting to justify your actions. Wanting to prove that you're right. Maybe even seeking some form of retaliation, some way to get back at the other person, along with a lack of sympathy, a lack of understanding, a lack of affection. These are all marks of both spiritual and emotional immaturity. See, I think what Peter desired for those to whom he was writing is while you are living in this world, I want you to be whole people. We have a God who is good, good, who calls us to live a good life so that through our lives, people will see a good God. Paul desired, Peter desired what Paul desired for the Ephesians when he said that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to com comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what Peter wants. That's what the Holy Spirit wants for you. For you and me to be filled with all the fullness of God. A good God filling his people. When we get to 2 Peter, and after we wrap up 1 Peter, we're going to go right into 2 Peter, just so you know. Um, and that's going to be, I think, after Easter. Peter's going to come back to these qualities. And he's going to present them. You can read ahead if you want, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. He's going to present these qualities along with a few others as a plan for personal, spiritual, and emotional maturity. Peter's going to say, make every effort to supplement your faith. You all, have, you all have nutritional supplements? You take nutritional supplements? Some of you are in Medicare, you have Medicare supplement plans? Okay, you, you supplement, you're just figuring out how to supplement. Well, here, make every effort as Christians to supplement your faith, and so faith was given to you as a gift, 
For by grace you are saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. God gives you faith, and then Peter says, now you need to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. If these qualities are yours and are on the increase, they will keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, that's the negative, the positive. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will lead you into the very best life possible. The good life. And then the last thing I would give you there, number five, the good life is a life that is conscious of God. It's just always conscious of God. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And so whoever desires to love life and see good days is conscious of a sovereign God who sees, who knows the eyes of the Lord are on you. He gives special care to watch over his people. He's continually aware of the de details of your life. He knows when you're seeking and pursuing peace. He'll see you this week when you show sympathy to someone. He'll see when you express affection and love. He knows that you're trying to be tender-hearted. He sees when you're turning from evil and doing good. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. So this is the life that we have been brought into and this is the life that Peter and Paul and all the rest of Scripture say, this is the good life. Go after it. Pursue it. It has to do with curving yourself out it has to do with denying self, dying to self, becoming a servant of all. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for scripture. Thank you for giving us clear instruction. And we just confess to you that, that we are there is much in our lives that is like that, that, that bent tree. From an early, early age, Lord, we get bent in the wrong direction. But then by your grace, you come along and you make it possible for us to start to grow differently. You start to straighten us out. You start to curve us, not in on ourselves, but out out towards you and towards other people. And we thank you for that. We thank you that there's hope, great, great hope for us. Thank you, Lord, that the things that we've looked at this morning, sympathy and unity of mind and humility and affection, we, we experience those things here at West Hills. And, and we're so blessed because of it. And we, we would give you all the glory for that and we would just pray that those things would only increase all to your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. You are without sin, but you know what sin does to us. And that's why you went to the cross. And so we praise you this morning for being our high priest. We, we praise you for being our savior. And we thank you that we can remember you this morning with the bread and with the cup we take these in remembrance of you 
to honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.